Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. My plan was uh, to preach from Romans 8. And uh, as I continue to uh, my study, uh, John 3.16 continued to come to mind. It's the text that I was going to be preaching anyway, but in light of everything that's happening in the world, there are some fitting passages in Romans 8 that, uh, that would address this situation. And we don't know uh, how long this is going to last, maybe six months, where our regular life is disrupted and um, we're under quarantine and curfews and restricted from traveling and gathering together as God's people. But as I considered this passage more, John chapter 3, verse 16, uh, I was taken by the comfort that an understanding of this passage can give to a Christian. So let's turn our attention to the reading of the word. John chapter 3. I'll read verses 16 through 17. Uh, The sermon will be on verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. As your pastor, Paul instructs me in 2 Corinthians 1.24 that I am a worker for your joy. Whether in good times or in bad times, in laughter, in tears, in life, or in death. And I do this primarily through the preaching of the word, which is intended to give patience and comfort that God's people may have hope. There are as many opinions as to what constitutes true comfort as there are men. For some, pleasure is the measure of comfort. If I feel good, if it makes me feel good, I'm comfortable. Another Self-control, self-discipline might bring them comfort and peace if they're able to control their passions, if they're able to control their body, if they're able to control their finances, they're at peace. Or maybe it's ideas, honors, riches, health. Having these things give us comfort. They give us peace, as it were. The problem with many of these things which at times can be gifts of God, is that they are passing. They do not last. The things that used to please us no longer please us. They get old, they wear out. We lose self-control and we slack on our self-discipline. And those areas that we had under control are no longer under control. We lose 
our position, we lose money, we lose our health. All of these things are passing. And ultimately, we lose all of these things when we die. We don't take them with us. Our idea of comfort results from a comparison or an opposition. We compare things. For example, a man might say, I have true comfort. To find out what the man means, you can ask a simple question. In light of what, or compared to what, or in opposition to what do you have comfort? And the person might answer, the man might answer, in light of all that is going on in the world and in my life, I have true comfort. See the comparison? Or, you know, to put it in a really simple way, you can say these shoes are comfortable. And I can say, compared to what? Compared to walking around barefoot. What then is the Christian's comfort, both in life and death? If you're, if you're familiar with the Heidelberg Catechism, you'd know that uh, that's really the introductory question, succinctly stated. And the author of that confession answers it this way. This is not in the question and answer format, but actually in the commentary on the confession. Ursinus says this. This is what is a Christian's comfort. The assurance of free remission of sins that all of our sins are forgiven and of reconciliation with God not only not only do we have our sins forgiven but we have fellowship we have a relationship with God the relationship that due to my fallen nature and due to my corruption and due to the misery that I lived in has now been restored with God by and on account of Christ. Christ had personal interest in reconciling me with God and reconciling us with God. And it was based upon his work that now Christians can enter into fellowship with God. But not only that, we have a certain expectation of eternal life. The believer understands that our life on earth is, is, is a small blip in our existence. And that these things are impressed upon our heart by the Holy Spirit through the gospel. These, this, these grand truths could never be separated from the truth of the gospel. And the one who makes application to the heart of the Christian is the Holy Spirit of God. It's not even the preacher. It's, it's, it's not the person who wrote a, the gospel-centered book that you read. But it is the Spirit himself who takes these truths and applies them to the heart of the believer. So that we may have no doubt but that we are the property of Christ. We belong to him. As it says in the Song of Solomon, he is our beloved and we are his. And that we are beloved of God 
for Christ's sake, for Christ's sake, and saved forever, according to the declaration of the apostle. This agrees with what Paul says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That's, that's a long way to say it. What is the Christian's comfort? Of course, this truly is the antidote to COVID-19. Not a vaccine, not respirators. But this is also an antidote to financial woes, tragic deaths, the pain and suffering of old age, and any other grief or difficulty you will face in this world. Another author, Vandergrew, writes this. He's, he's kind of trying to capture the idea of what is a Christian's true comfort. And he says this, what it does. What, what does this comfort do? Right, Because we can think about the comfort, but yet in life, what is the effect that the comfort has on the, on the believer? And he says this. Its very essence is therefore the strengthening, satisfaction, an appeasement of man's heart in the face of any evil that may either already be oppressing him or that is eminent, an evil that causes him to be very fearful. The purpose of this comfort, which if I, I, you know, if I were to summarize it, it, I would summarize it in this way. The substance of it is that we are loved by God in Christ. It is intended to strengthen, to satisfy, and to appease our hearts in difficulty. This truth, that we are loved by God in Christ. And that's John's point in John three sixteen. Let me read the verse again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And I have six truths that relate to our comfort and that teach us about God's love that, that I want to draw out of this text. The first is just generally stated the love of God for his people. Second is how that love is expressed. Third, the nature of the love of God. Fourth, the extent of the love of God. Fifth, the purpose of the love of God. And sixth, the benefit of the love of God. And uh, we'll be here a long time. So the love of God stated... In light of what John had, had just been declaring to Nicodemus, that the Son came into the world, and he came into the world for a particular reason. He came to be lifted up, that all men might look to him and be saved. And now he tells us why. Why does the Son step down from heaven to hang upon the cross? He tells us plainly, for God so loved the world. The Father, the maker of heaven and earth, 
the Lord of all, and as one author put it, the debtor to none loved this world. And in particular, he loved the people. Note this about the words of Christ. First, the triune God agrees. The Father, of course, is the spring and the source of our redemption. But the Son, agreeing perfectly with the Father, comes into the world. He submits himself to the will of the Father joyfully. And then the Spirit so works to empower the Son and to enable God's people to believe in the gospel. So note that first, that he says here very clearly that God loves us. And this is really an an expression of the unity of the Trinity in the work of redemption. And the Father is the source of that redemption. Second, God is not moved to love because we love him. That's not the way that redemption works. God does not express his love for a people who loved him first. So in 1 John 4, 9, the same author, John writes this. This is the love of God. This, in this, excuse me, in this, the love of God was manifested toward us. That God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. So how does God show his love for us? By sending his son into the world that we might have life. And then in verse 10, he continues and says, and this is love. Not that we loved God. It's not that we loved God. It's not that our love for God compelled God to act on on our behalf. That's how it works many times for us. We love our children, so we sacrifice in some particular way to give them joy, to express our love for them. We love our wives, and uh, women love their husbands, or we love our church, or we... But not so with God. Not so. We did not love him. He loved us first. But that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In the same chapter, 1 John 4 and verse 19, we read these words. We love him because he first loved us. So as Christ presents this heavenly truth to Nicodemus that the Son of God must come into the world to be crucified, he explains to Nicodemus clearly that the reason for the death of the Son of God is the love of God for the people of God. This teaches us clearly that God's love is unmerited. There is nothing that I do to make me a a recipient of that love. 
I can't do anything to cause God to increase his love for me. And I cannot do anything to cause him to decrease his love for me. And note what he says. Does he say God loves? It's past tense. Loved. God so loved the world that he continues to love his people is evident in the fact that he adopts them. He makes them his very own children. But here what John stresses is that there was a, this love is an old love, as it were. In Ephesians 1.5, Paul states it this way. He says, having predestined us, to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. God purposed and planned in himself to save a people because he loved them. Christ died Excuse me. Christ did not die so that God could love us. He died because God loves us. He is, as A.W. Pink put it, God's loved gift. This at once refutes all kinds of errors. Uh, errors where, where people teach that, that, you know, the will of the Son, right? Jesus loves sinners, so Jesus comes into the world to die for them to satisfy his Father who is angry. Or people who teach that there is something that we must do to satisfy the wrath of God. It is impossible for that to happen. The very opposite is true. Christ dies because the Father loves his people. And this is a truth that we see throughout the Old Testament. Uh, God's choosing of the fathers, God's choosing of the people of Israel as a nation, and even in passages like Jeremiah 31, 3, we, we hear these words, Yea, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. In Romans 5, verse 8 and 10, Paul states it this way. God commends his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Right? What, what God is doing by lifting up the sun, by displaying the sun for our eyes to behold, by, as Paul says in Galatians, proclaiming him as crucified, is God is commending his love to us. He is showing, he is opening up, as it were, his heart to his people. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, you see, we were enemies. It, it, it wasn't, uh, your repentance doesn't cause,
cause God to draw near to you. It doesn't, it's impossible. While we were yet sinners, and this doesn't mean, right, Paul is not talking about Christians who might sin. He's talking about being unconverted. When, or as he says in Ephesians 2, when we were dead in trespasses and sins, Christ died for us. In verse 10, he continues, he says, For when we were enemies, for if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. You see, the emphasis of the entire Bible is that God loved the people, therefore God makes a way of redemption. And as we come into the New Testament, it becomes explicitly clear that the way that God expresses his love is by giving his son. The atonement, as one put it, was not the cause, but the effect of God's love. It was not the cause, but the effect. This should if we are Christians, cause us to look and meditate upon the mercy of God in Christ. Because our redemption rests entirely in his love for us. You know, some people think that the way that you cause unconverted people to believe in the Lord Jesus is by purely preaching the law. That is completely backwards. All the law can do to an unconverted person is make them condemned. And when Paul himself speaks about the issue of the law, particularly in Romans chapter 7, he teaches that what it did was it, it almost inflamed his heart to sin more because he was without hope in the world. But the declaration of the love of God to sinners, as Christ is doing here to Nicodemus, a man who he just finished rebuking several times for his obstinacy, the preaching of the love of God to sinners, the preaching of the gospel, making clear the gospel, is the means the Spirit uses to save sinners. So how does God express his love to sinners? He tells us, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave his only begotten son. And here, of course, we have the language of gift and of sacrifice sort of put together here. The background is Genesis chapter 22 when Abraham offers up his only son. So in verse 16, oh, let's turn there. In Genesis chapter 22, in verse 16, this is the Lord responding to Abraham. By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your 
only son. This narrative, this Old Testament narrative, really lies in the background of what Jesus is saying here. As Luther put it, Jesus, God's only son, is as great as God himself. This is an eternally incomprehensible gift. Where Genesis chapter 22 lies in the background here, God excels even Abraham by the giving of his own son. This gift is the evidence of God's love. And not only the father, but of the son's love, of course. It's not the same exact situation as Abraham and his son Isaac. Here, the son also agrees perfectly with the father's will and is willing to enter the world to die for sinners. And Paul, in Romans chapter 8, he says this, He who did not spare his own son. I listen to those words. Let, let, that, that, let, let those words ring in your ear and meditate upon them and let them press down in your own heart that God did not spare his own son. Um, I don't know any person who would, be giving, who would be willing to give up their own child for the love of another man, of another person, for their love uh, for another person. Yet this is what God does. But he delivers him up for us all. And that word there, that, that word delivered, is derived from our word here in, in uh, John Chapter 3, verse 16, he gave. And God delivers up his son for us all. The way that Isaiah writes it in Isaiah 53.10 is this way. He said, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him, the Father has put his son to grief. And he does this for our redemption. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. And we, we, we can continue to add uh, verses of Scripture that make it very, very clear that God gives His Son, and the gift of His Son is the gift of a sacrifice. That is what God gives a sacrifice to atone for our sins. John Murray commenting on a verse I just read, Romans 8.32, he says this, The father delivered over his own son to the damnation and abandonment which sin merited. 
There was no amelioration of the condemnation executed upon him. Gethsemane, Gethsemane and Calvary are the proofs. He, he bore the full weight of God's wrath. And there's a connection that many don't tend to make. And, and this is the connection. God saves us from himself. God does not save us from the devil. God does not save us from sin per se. What God ultimately saves us from at the cross is the wrath that he would have poured out upon us if he had not loved us. That he saves us from the power of the devil is made, is, is made plain throughout the New Testament. That he saves us from the power of sin and from the condemnation of sin is true. But the, the ultimate penalty, the wrath of God is what men ought to fear. We ought to fear him who can cast our souls into the lake of fire. And he saves us from that by offering up his own son. It was only because the son was the subject of a unique relationship and the object of incomparable love that he could be our deliverer over damnation a damnation which he himself endured and ended for those whom God loves. So, our second point there. The love of God stated was the, was the first and then how it is expressed in the giving of his own son. Third is the nature of of the love of God. And it is uh, sacrificial. It's sacrificial. The one he gives is his only begotten son. And what this does, as, as I just quoted from uh, John Murray in light of Romans 8, is it, it highlights, or the way Calvin puts it, it magnifies the fervor of the love of God towards us. It's a big deal. Of course, this language of only begotten is uh, a theological language. And it has reference primarily to the relationship that the Son, the eternal Son, sustains with the Father. And it was, it was this one that the Father gave. The difficulty that we have is sometimes, well, we have two difficulties. The first is this. Sometimes we're too easily convinced that people love us. We're easily convinced that, that a person loves us. So any show of love or any display of affection 
convinces us, and we think to ourselves, oh, that person must like me. There was a display of, of affection in some way. And since God loves us, genuinely and truly loves his people, and he loves us for his own will and for his own good purpose, God sends forth his own son, his only begotten son, to magnify the fervor of his love. A second issue that we deal with is, so on the one hand, we're easily convinced of the love of people, yet on the other hand, we're not so easily convinced. And we, we don't understand that someone may be showing genuine love for us. So what the Lord does is, you know, to use colloquial, is that the word? Colloquial language? Colloquial, colloquial, that's how you say it, colloquial. Yeah, that word, to use that kind of language. Um, I forgot my point now, trying to figure out that word. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, God loves us a lot. And what he does is he gives us his best, right? which is the son. And, and in speaking that way, that in no sense to diminish the glory of the son or to give the son a subordinate status, that is not the case at all. But it does show the extravagance of God's love and to the, the nature of his love for us, that it was sacrificial. And throughout the Bible, God expresses his love for his son, how dearly he cares for and loves his son. His son, the Lord Jesus himself, speaks of glory that he shared with the Father before the world was. This is not a common relationship. This is the relationship between a father and a son, the eternal father and the eternal son. In order to remove all doubts that we might have, he sends him into the world. He did not spare his only begotten son. It wasn't a lamb. It wasn't a bull. It was none of these things. It was the son of God. Now, so that's our, our third point. Fourth, the extent of God's love. John writes, God so loved the world. And later on, he says, whosoever believes, or the ones believing. And you know, so you, you, you do your job as a pastor or as a Bible student to, to try to understand what John is communicating here. And um, immediately, the issue arises over limited atonement when people come to this passage. And um, I think we, we can come back to that, but I think the reason why he uses universal language, the world, and the ones believing, all those who believe, I believe that's universal language. It does limit it to the believers. 
but it leaves it open. Whoever believes, why does he do that? Because no man can have an excuse on the day of judgment. The offer of the gospel is freely and indiscriminately offered to the world. We don't look for the elect, right? They don't have a certain birthmark or color eyes or a hairstyle or way they dress or, you know, a, a, a lisp. The gospel is offered to all men. And Jesus, in declaring the gospel to Nicodemus, declares it in that very way, free and indiscriminately. There's, and it's, again, it's not that there is anything in the world that is worthy. But on the flip side of it is that the world stands condemned and the only Savior of men is the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, He is the only one who can be offered. There is nowhere else to go, no one else to look to but the Lord Jesus God in Christ is willing to be reconciled to men. He shows himself willing to be reconciled to men in sending his son into the world and in offering him up as a sacrifice for sin. And he invites all men to believe in the son. This is all we need to enter into heaven. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 9, 13. He says, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Who's a sinner? Everybody. And Jesus is saying, I'm calling everybody to repent. There is no excuse on judgment day. I wasn't elect. I didn't. No. There is no excuse. Faith takes hold of Christ as he is offered in the gospel. That's what faith does. The way that Christ is presented in this book is the way that we take hold of him and we believe in him for eternal life. Point five, the purpose of God's love. Here's the purpose For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever should believe in him should not perish. Should not perish. And so if you uh, turn back to John, if you're already there, look at verse 18, John chapter 3, verse 18. What does Jesus mean by saying this, that they should not perish. Well, Jesus tells us, look at verse 18. Verse 18, he who believes in him is not condemned. To not perish is to not be condemned. So one aspect of not perishing has to do with a legal judgment, which is condemnation. The opposite of condemnation is justification. 
So to not perish means not to be condemned. First, now look at verse 36 in the same chapter. And this now is John the Baptist. He says this, John 3.36. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. It's in his very hand, as it were. It's in his heart, and it's constantly on his mind. And he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. We touched this briefly when we said, when I said that God saves us from God. God, at the cross, saves us from the wrath of God. Perishing, when a person perishes, they're condemned. When a person perishes, they become subject to the wrath of God. And that judgment, that condemnation is forever. Forever. So on the one hand, you have a life that is eternal, that is offered in the Son. Yet on the other, you have judgment that is eternal. There's no rest stops. There's no breaks. It is eternal judgment. John says it this way in Revelation 14. In Revelation 14, 10 and 11, he writes this. Those who worship the beast, he's speaking of those who worship the beast. Verse 10, he himself, Revelation fourteen ten. speaking of those who take the mark of the beast, which I think is just an expression for unbelievers. He himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. This is what it means to perish. It means to be condemned, to be under the wrath of God, to suffer and be tormented under that wrath forever. Forever. Turn back to um, John. And if you look at John chapter 5, And Jesus adds this in John 5, beginning at verse 28. Jesus says, 
Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear the voice, will hear his voice, and come forth. You know, they're going to get a preview when he does this with Lazarus. Jesus is saying here that at the end, what happened with Lazarus is going to happen with everybody. They're all going to hear the way that Lazarus did. And they're all going to come out of, they're going to come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Resurrection means here, bodily resurrection. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation, judgment. So it's, it's condemnation, it's wrath, it's torment forever in a body fit for judgment. And Jesus says to Nicodemus that all who believe that God sent his son into the world are saved from this judgment. All who believe. To, to add some points here of application that are very specific to what's going on, look at John 16. John 16 and verse 30. Uh, I'll read from verse 31. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Indeed, the hour is coming, yes, has now come, that you will be scattered, each to his own, and will leave me alone. Yet, I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In Christ, in Him, right? We, we, we stand and we know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no wrath. There is no judgment. None of those things. In the world, you will have tribulation. You see? What we're experiencing now, coronavirus, people, uh, you know, basically, you know, in the, in the old world, they would have called this just a good old-fashioned plague, right? And the way that it's spreading, it's killing a particular group, but others are also suffering. We think it's just 55 and over, but there are people in other age groups that die, particularly if you have uh, underlying conditions, or if you are compromised, if your immune system is compromised. And the Bible does not promise that God will deliver you from that kind of suffering, from that kind of tribulation. Christians are not exempt from that kind of suffering. God does not promise that you, your, your loved ones won't die. God doesn't promise that. He doesn't promise that you won't die. He doesn't promise that other Christians won't die. He doesn't promise that. 
Jesus makes it clear, you will have tribulation. But then he says, but be of good cheer. Have comfort and joy in this. I have overcome the world. What is he talking about there? What does Jesus mean? I have overcome the world. Um, so he, yes, Paul tells us he has overcome principalities and powers in this world. But he has also overcome every trial, every tribulation, and every difficulty in his world, in this world, by means of his death. And, and look at John one forty oh, one no, chap, uh, John first John chapter four verse four. First John. So keep that in mind. Jesus has overcome every trial, every difficulty, every peril of this world through his death. He has overcome in the cross. And then he says this in John, 1 John 4, 4. John writes, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world, therefore they speak of the world, and the world hears them. You are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know that we have the Spirit of God. So John reminds us that Christ himself, in his work, he overcomes the world. And then he says, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And there what he does is he transposes, as it were, Christ or faith in the place of Christ. The object of our faith is, uh, is, is the, excuse me, the instrument which is faith, is put in place of the object of our faith. Because when we believe in Christ, all of the perils of this world are overcome in him. He promises us this. And Paul elaborates on this particular point in Romans 8. In Romans 8. And verse 37. He says, Yet in all these things, in all what things, Paul? In all what things? Look at verse 35. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, the sword. In all these things, we are more than conquerors 
through him who loved us. It doesn't matter what obstacle, right, in God's providence, whatever he brings us through, we are conquerors in all those things. Not that we conquer those things, right? He's not saying here that the Christian is an elite Navy SEAL class that can overcome any obstacle and see their way through it on the other side. That's not his point. What he is saying is that in God's providence, as we are brought through all of these things, those things become our servants. We conquer through them, through him who loves us. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We conquer. Verse 38, for I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. All of these things, if they take our life on earth, they make us victors in heaven. They usher us into the very presence of God. The love of God These things cannot separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the purpose of the love of God is that we should not perish. Not that we will not have difficulty in this world but that as we go through tribulation in this world all of those things are fit and used for our good. We conquer in them through Christ. Then lastly, the benefit of the love of God. We shall not perish, but have everlasting life. We shall have everlasting life. By the sacrifice of his death, Christ pays for all of our sins. Nothing can prevent us from entering into heaven, from standing before the presence of God, from being acknowledged as the sons of God and entering into eternal bliss. What Jesus has in mind here is the certainty of salvation. And what he says to Nicodemus is, Nicodemus, you can be certain that you will enter into the kingdom. And you can do this with boldness and with good reason. Because God, on account of what Christ has done, does not impute our sins to us. The curse and death are destroyed in the work of Christ. 
And this all, of course, is, is an expression of God's love. God has prepared a way for his people to enter into the kingdom even now and then to enter into it eternally either at Christ's coming or when we die we enter the intermediate state. And this is a perfect salvation. This is a perfect salvation which God has accomplished for his children and it pleases God to lead us along this way of righteousness and into heaven by the death of his son. Yet in this world, although we may suffer physically, we may suffer spiritually, the church here on earth has, will never be abandoned. It is through these things that God has ordained that we would enter into heaven. As it says in Psalm thirty-four, nineteen, many are the afflictions of the righteous. It's not just one or two afflictions. They are many. In Acts 14.22, Paul says, he's pre, he's, he makes his circuit around through the churches he had been ministering to, and he says to them, we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. A lot of it, not a little, much. But in light of these things, we can have courage. We, we can enter into the battle and we can have hope. Whatever it is that we're struggling with, it can be a struggle and a dogged fight with sin, which is necessary for the Christian. If, if, if you're not doing that, well, you should doubt whether you're a Christian or not. Yet, even in those periods where in that dogged fight, you may lose strength, become weary... We can remember that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We can be certain of our outcome, not because we always win the battle here on earth, but because Christ has won it for us and has opened the doors to the kingdom of heaven. We can, with the psalmist, preach to ourselves and say, Why are you cast down, O my soul, hope in God there will always be strife there will always be sorrows there will always be difficulties yet Christ is always for us he's always for us he is never against us and if he is with us if he is for us what can man what can viral bacteria is due to us. The, the, the worst they could do is usher us into his presence. We'll suffer for a couple weeks, be sick, cough, can't breathe. You'll struggle, you'll fight, right? You'll be afraid, you might soil the bed, and then you close your eyes, and they're open, and there he is. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. The great work of salvation, our redemption, 
the accomplishment of all of it was delivered to us by stripes, by the suffering of the Son of God. Therefore, we can have full confidence that in whatever providence, however dark, however difficult God puts us through, it's for our good. Um, yeah, weeks in quarantine, uh, weird church services with 10 people or less, or audio, you know, video and audio streaming services, whatever it might be, um, all of these things are temporary. There, there will be a day and there will be a place where all of God's people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will gather together and worship the Lamb because of what He has done for us. So let us uh, brave all of this with hope. And uh, let me finish by quoting Vandergrew again. Theodorus Vandergrew, for those who are interested. He writes, In light of the fact that we are his property, the Lord Jesus, with the most tender love, with the greatest care, and the utmost of his power sustains and preserves us against all our enemies. They are the apple of Christ's eye, his body, his flesh, and his blood. He is their compassionate savior, their head, their husband, and their Lord and king. It is a matter of honor for him that his believers will not perish to all eternity. Yeah, you think about that, right? It's a matter of honor to him, right? Uh, one argument, right? So Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of some guilt within. Upward I look and see him there, and I say to the devil, I say to my misinformed conscience, friend, it is a matter of Christ's honor that I will enter heaven. Be quiet. It is a matter of honor for him that his believers will not perish to all eternity and that no one will be able to pluck them out of his hand, but that at his time he will safely bring them into his Father's house. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great love for us and may you help us to live in light of that love displayed to us in Christ. Amen.